Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, as we get into the heart of the book of Romans. In some sense, Romans 16, 1, 16, and 17 is really the theme for the book of Romans. Now, before we get into that, I want to start with a little illustration of the first time I ever drove a car, okay? I don't know what it was like for you the first time you ever drove a car, but it was probably a somewhat magical experience, right? Your parents took you to, uh, you know, maybe a, an abandoned Kmart parking lot. I don't even know if they have Kmarts anymore, but they did when you learned to drive. And you went to that parking lot, and they showed you how to push the accelerator. They showed you how to brake, which you probably braked way too hard. If it was a manual, they showed you how to use a stick while you complained the entire time that you wish you had an automatic. That was probably your experience of the first time you ever drove a car. But that was not my first experience. My first experience came, in some sense, due to a medical emergency. So I'll tell you what happened. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a buddy named Brian, not my brother-in-law, a different Brian. And uh, we were young, single guys in high school, and a new girl moved into the neighborhood. And so we thought, she probably needs to meet us. She probably needs to behold who we are. So we hopped in his black Ford F-150, and we drove to her house, and we were just going to say hi. We were going to introduce her uh, to ourselves. We were going to welcome her to the neighborhood. And so I get out of the passenger side door of his truck like a normal person, and as he gets out of the driver's side and goes to slam the door, it sounds muffled. It sounds like he closed his seatbelt or something like that in the door. All of a sudden, he starts screaming like bloody murder. He's yelling and screaming, and I'm like, shh. We're trying to make an impression here, right? He's screaming. What he had done is he had slammed his hand in the car door. He had actually slammed his hand so hard in the car door that it shut, so he had to then open it, okay? So he starts screaming, and he's yelling, you can see the bone. That's what he's yelling, that you can see the bone. You can see the bone, dude. And he runs over in her yard, and he falls down on his knees, and he just starts cursing and bleeding everywhere. And I'm thinking, if she comes out right now, this is like the worst first impression ever. None of us are going on dates, right? None of us are going on dates with cursy, bleedy guy in your yard. And so he goes, oh, you got to help me. You got to drive me home. And I'm like, I've never driven before, but because I need to save your life, I will. And so he got in the passenger side. I got in the driver's side, had never driven a car, never been behind the wheel, which then means you have a tendency to hit the brake a little bit too hard. So we got to add whiplash to his hand injury. And so drive him home. Thankfully, it was just in a neighborhood. We didn't have to drive too far. I curbed the truck, of course, because I've never driven. And then he gets out, though his hand is hurting, and he starts limping inside like this. He's crying, and he's limping. He's dragging his leg like a zombie. And he gets inside his house. And I remember this very vividly. He kept calling his mom, dude. He kept going, dude, you can see the bone, dude. I'm bleeding everywhere, dude. And I'm like, she's not a dude. You're probably going to be okay, all right? Later, turns out, everything was fine. What he thought was the bone was just fatty tissue, and he overreacted, okay? Now, here's why I tell you that story. The first time I ever drove a car, not very good at it. Not very good at it, right? There was stress, there was blood, there was curbing, there was breaking a lot of traffic laws. Today, I'm a pretty good driver. I've actually never had a ticket, and I've never been in a wreck, all right? Pretty good driver. As you learn to drive, you get better and better and better at it, and then eventually you master it. So the first time you drive, you're not very good at it, but then over time, you get better at it. Now, here's why I tell you that. That is unlike the gospel, okay? You never master the gospel. I think a lot of people think that the gospel, the central message in Christianity of how we're saved in Christ, what a lot of people think is that uh, you need that really for salvation. It's kind of the training wheels when you're getting started, but eventually you master it. 
That eventually you move beyond the gospel and you just try to be a better person or something like that. That is not Christianity. Christianity is unlike driving and that you never master it. You never fully arrive. You have to always, always, always be going back to the truths of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what is the gospel and how does it save. Now, this text is powerful. The entire book of Romans, though, in a sense, is a nuclear bomb against the enemy. All right? Uh, St. Augustine was converted reading the book of Romans. He was sitting in a garden, overwhelmed by his sin, and picked up a copy of the Bible and started reading in Romans and was converted. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, was converted through reading the book of Romans, specifically God's idea of justification by faith. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church was founded by John and Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer. He wrote things like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and John Wesley was a great evangelist. John Wesley was converted by hearing Luther's preface to his Romans commentary read, and he was converted. He said it, quote, felt like his heart was strangely warmed, and he was converted. So this is a powerful book as we get into the entire series of Romans, but especially in this text this morning. So before we get into verse 16, let's pray, and then we will jump in. First, I would ask you to pray for yourselves. If there is a place where you need to repent, if there is something that you're struggling with that you would ask for help, uh, whatever you need to pray for, would you do that right now? Secondly, I'd ask you to pray for some people around you. Maybe you know them and you know things that uh, are going on in their world, or maybe you don't know them at all and they're just total strangers. Would you take just a second to pray for them? And then lastly, would you pray for me? I just confess this has been a difficult week for me spiritually, and so I just ask that you would, uh, that you would pray for me uh, before we get started. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. We just ask for help as we dive into your word. We thank you for your word, that you've given us the truth of the gospel in black and white. And so uh, we just ask that, uh, that your name would be uh, lifted high this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to walk through this text, not only line by line, but phrase by phrase. That's kind of a parkway staple here. So let's start in verse 16a. Verse 16a, he says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word for there links back to verse 15. In verse 15, Paul said that he wanted to visit Rome so that he could preach the gospel, and now he's going to say why, okay? Why does he want to talk about the gospel? The first thing and the main claim he's making in verse 16 is that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Then, as well as now, there is a tendency to want to be embarrassed about Christ, to want to be embarrassed about Christianity, to want to be ashamed of the gospel, okay? And what Paul is going to say is that I'm not ashamed of it. Not only does he mean emotionally he's not ashamed, but he's saying, I'm going to keep holding to it. I'm going to keep preaching it. Doesn't matter how many times I'm in prison. Doesn't matter if people make fun of me. Doesn't matter if people attack me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And Paul here is fighting a war on two fronts, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24 says this, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm not ashamed of Jesus and I'm not ashamed of the gospel, though Paul is fighting a war on two fronts. On one front, he has the Jews who are persecuting him, the non-believing Jews, the Jews that reject Jesus. And on the other hand, he has the non-Jews persecuting him, the Gentiles. Both groups are mocking and making fun of and rejecting the gospel, Okay. Let me ask you this question. Why do most Jews not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? You ever wondered that? 
He's a Jewish Messiah sent to a Jewish people, prophesied about in Jewish scriptures. Why is it that most Jews don't accept Jesus as the Messiah? And here's the answer, because he got crucified because he got crucified. Now, the Old Testament teaches the Messiah would be crucified, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Why do most Jews in the first century, though, miss who Jesus is? And it's because they have a false presupposition. They have a false understanding of what the Messiah is. If you're a Jew in the first century, you're wanting a merely political Messiah. You're wanting somebody who's like King David Jr., who will make Israel great again, okay? By the way, that's, that's not me going for or against that. I just think that's a funny phrase, to make Israel great again, okay? That's what you're wanting in the first century. You're thinking our problem is Rome, and so if we can get a king to come in and destroy Rome, that will be the Messiah. So in their mind, the fact that the Messiah got crucified makes no sense. Messiahs don't get crucified. Messiahs crucify. That's why Jesus has to show up on the scene and say, hey, 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 you want God to come judge your enemies, but you don't really because you're them because you're sinners too. You see, your problem is not Rome. Your problem is sin. So on one hand, Paul has to, has to guard against this uh, Jewish claim that Jesus is not the Messiah because he was crucified. On the other hand, Paul's having to guard against Gentiles who are persecuting him, all right? Gentiles think the idea of Christianity is ridiculous. They're used to Plato, and they're used to Aristotle, and they're used to rich philosophy. Listen, let me say it as strongly as I can. We worship a homeless Jewish guy who got killed, That's our faith. So if you're not a Christian, that sounds crazy to you. And so Paul is saying, first of all, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, okay? Now, I want to show you something that's kind of cool. I want to show you a picture of graffiti. So you thought graffiti was just something kids do today with spray paint. Uh, Graffiti's always been around. I want to show you a picture of graffiti. This comes between the first and the third century, so right after the time of the New Testament, between the first and the third century. And it is anti-Christian graffiti, Okay, we actually cleared it up. I had Tim make another slide where you can, there you go. That way you can actually see what's scribbled on that wall. This is anti-Christian graffiti from between the first and third century making fun of Christians. This is called the Alexamenos Graffito. It's also called the Graffito Blasphemo, which means the, the blasphemous graffiti. Here's what's going on in this text. You have a person there on the cross. Who's that supposed to be? Jesus, right? But look what head he's been given. He's been given the head of a donkey to make fun of him. And there's a guy worshiping him, okay? Notice that guy's hand is raised, both in the New Testament and in the early church. One of the ways people worshiped was through raising of hands. And uh, what that says in Greek is that says, Alexamenos sebetetheon. Alexamenos worships God, okay? So this is anti-Christian graffiti making fun of some guy named Alexamenos for worshiping a crucified Savior. You're worshiping this guy who got killed on a cross, so they put a donkey head on him, and they make fun of this guy for worshiping his God. Both then and now, there will be a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? Verse 16a, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We're going to throw up a definition that we mentioned last week. I want to read it to you again. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights by reestablishing His rule and reign, i.e. His kingdom. When you see the Bible talk about the kingdom of God, that's what it means. Over the world, through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of His eternal Son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. Here's what that means. I know that's a bunch of words. The central theme of Christianity is not you trying to be a good person by checking off your do's and don'ts list. 
The central theme of Christianity is that we have sinned and broken the world, and God is fixing that world and saving mankind by grace by sending His Son to live the life we should have lived, die on a cross to take the punishment we deserve, and raises Him from the dead that He might rule and reign over all creation. That's what Paul is not afraid of. That's what Paul is not afraid of. That's what he preaches in the gospel. Verse 16b. Verse 16b. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's his central claim in verse 16. Now he's going to tell us why. Paul, why are you not afraid of the gospel? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's what saves. It's like being in the middle of the ocean drowning and someone throws you a life raft. You're not ashamed of that life raft. It's what you need for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's talk about this phrase, power of God, real quick in this text. There's four of us on staff, and each of us have some weird quirks, okay? Some weird things that we make fun of each other for. So let me mention a few of those. Carl. Carl plays the French horn, okay? He actually did his master's degree in French horn performance. So we will make fun of Carl all the time for that. So anytime we see the wrong instrument, we'll, be, we'll see like a tuba, and we're like, Carl, is that a French horn? Can you play that? Right? Uh, Carl, didn't you master in trumpet? And we'll mix up what instrument he's playing. Carl, is that the way you got your wife? You just wooed her through playing French horn? She just thought that was so attractive. And so we'll make fun of him for playing French horn, okay? Despite the fact that it sounds like a trumpet being played underwater, all right? <laughs> Additionally, Carl loves Rubik's Cubes. Lo- I don't know why. There's like 18 of them on his desk, and he's always doing Rubik's Cubes, all right? He's like a beautiful mind. We come in in the morning, and he's got a Rubik's Cube, and then on the window, he's drawing all these equations, and we're like, Carl, what are you doing? He's like, shh, I'm calculating, right? We don't know why. He's not a math guy, but he loves Rubik's Cubes, okay? Tim. Tim drives a Prius, okay? I don't know why Tim drives a Prius. He's a man, but he drives a Prius. (laughs) So at some point, we've already decided on staff that we're going to take one of those coexist bumper stickers and put that on the back of his Prius, okay? You know those bumper stickers that basically say you know nothing about the world's beliefs of the major religions? We're going to put one of those on the back of his Prius. Now, Tim also loves Saturday Night Live. He loves SNL. He's seen every episode, and what he'll do is he will bring up skits that he wants us to watch in the middle of meetings, right? He he thinks they pertain to what we're talking about, but they typically don't, okay? So we're like, what should we do with this couple that's struggling in their marriage? And he's like, I've got a skit for you to watch. And we watch it, and it's like about popcorn or something, and it's unhelpful. Okay? Jeff, Jeff loves bears, all right? Just about every sermon, he'll mention something about bears. He thinks about bears, talks about bears more than a normal person. Additionally, Jeff is a quarter Japanese, and so he has an affinity for Japanese culture, but it's got to be authentic, all right? So if I'm like, hey, Jeff, you want to try this new sushi place? He's like, was it shipped in from Tokyo this morning? Then no, thank you. And then he'll pull out his chopsticks and eat his french fries, right? Or whatever we're at uh, doing that. Uh, me, there's a lot of things you could make fun of, but this is why I'm up here making fun of the guys and not them the other way around. Uh, two things about me, though. One, I really like pirates. Isn't that weird? I like pirates. I'm interested in pirates. I read books on pirate history. Not Somali pirates. Those ruin pirating for me. But like buccaneers, right? The Caribbean. I like pirates. Additionally, I like doing little magic tricks, right? Nothing witchcrafty, nothing weird, but just like pick a card, any card, all right? I love that. My wife hates it. She has said, quote, that is the least attractive thing about you. Okay? <laughs> I like doing that, though, all right? Especially if there's little kids. I'll, I'll pull a spoon out of my mouth, and they don't realize it's magic, so they start trying to shove a spoon down their mouth, and I have to explain. And so, anyway, I like those little tricks. Now, here's why I tell you that story. The kind of magic tricks I do, you guys want to see one? I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. That'd be weird. The kind of magic tricks I do are not actually anything evil. 
I'm not getting Satan's power. I'm not conjuring up the dead. I'm just doing little tricks. The idea of power, though, when this phrase here, power, is used in the first century, for people that were non-Christians would have had a connotation of paganism. You have this guy in the book of Acts named Simon who's said to be a magician. That doesn't mean he's like David Blaine. That means he's into witchcraft, all right? He's into witchcraft. So the idea behind paganism and false religion and witchcraft and black magic going on in Rome in the first century is that I would somehow do a mantra or cast a spell or manipulate blood or water or whatever it might be, and so doing, I could get the gods to do what I wanted them to do. That's the idea of power as it would have been understood in a Roman context. What Paul is saying is that that's not where power is found. Power is not found in you trying to conjure it up. Power is not found in false religions or anything like this. He's saying power is found in God. You don't command God what to do. God commands you what to do. And he says that the, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the way that God gets people saved, okay? It's the means that God uses to redeem sinful humanity. Let me give you a great quote from Martin Luther. He says this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Here's what he's saying. All I had to do to transform the world was preach the gospel. I would simply get up and teach the Bible, and as I was having a beer with my buddy or as I was taking a nap, people were getting saved, people's lives were being redeemed, corrupt practices in the Roman Catholic Church were being exposed, and I didn't have to do anything. I just preached the gospel, and because it's the power of God unto salvation, it is effective. It transforms people. Look at the last part of verse 16b. For it is the power of God for what? For salvation. Here's my question for you. From what do you need to be saved? When this text says salvation, salvation from what? From what do you need to be saved? Here's the answer biblically in what Paul's talking about. We need salvation from damnation. That's our problem. There's a lot of problems in a broken world. Yes, there's poverty. Yes, there's social issues. Yes, there's all these things. And some of those things are really bad. Some of those things we need to, to work to stomp out bad things. But mankind's primary problem is that we are sinful and we stand before a holy God. Okay? That's what salvation means for Paul. It's eschatological salvation. Let me say it stronger. If you are a sinner, your greatest problem is God. But He's also your solution. But He's also your solution. The gospel is the power of God that redeems you from God, that redeems you from God's wrath, that redeems you from God's hatred. We are born sinful and under the wrath of a just, fiery God. And it's the gospel that saves us from that. It's the gospel that uh, propitiates God's wrath towards us, all right? Verse 16c, we saw his claim, he's not ashamed of the gospel. We saw why, because it's the gospel that saves. Now he's going to talk about for whom is the gospel? Who is the gospel for? Verse 16c, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice that the gospel is both exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive in that it's only for those that trust in Christ. It's not just everybody's saved because of Christ. Only those that believe in Christ are saved. But it's inclusive in that it's for all types of people, people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, men and women, black and white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. So it's exclusive in that it's only for those who believe, but it's inclusive in that whoever so will may come if God is drawing their heart first, if God is drawing their heart first first, okay? 
You guys know the song uh, around Christmas time, Here Comes Santa Claus? I'm not going to sing it. If you don't know it, it's awful, okay? Here comes Santa Claus. Here. There's a line in that song that puts me through the roof, and this is the line. Santa Claus knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right. What? No. Uh, yes, there's a sense in which we're all God's children and that He created us, but only those that know Christ are God's children. Only those that know Christ are those who've been adopted into God's family. It's not that all generic humanity is God's family. Only those that know Christ are. Only those who believe. Look again at 16c. Let's look at both these lines. To everyone who believes, and then what does it mean to say to the Jew first and also to the Greek? First of all, when it says it's for everyone who believes, I want to say three things about that little phrase, okay? In Greek, the word there for believes, the verb, is a present tense verb. And in Greek, unlike in English, what that means is that it's continuous. It's continual, okay? Yes, there is a moment where you go from not believing to believing. Yes, there is a moment where you go from being lost to being saved. But the emphasis here is for the person that continues to believe. Let me say it stronger. I don't care if you know the exact day that you got saved. What I want to know is, do you love Jesus now? Do you trust Jesus now? Do you hate your sin now? Do you repent now? Do you believe? Do you continue to believe in Jesus? Okay? Second thing I want to say about belief is this. Belief has both an objective element and a subjective element. Here's what I mean by that. To be saved, you have to have the right object of faith. Okay? You have to believe in the Trinitarian God of the Bible, of historic Christianity. You can't be like someone, for example, who may be a Muslim who has a ton of faith but in the wrong God. You have to have the correct object of faith for Paul. This isn't just generic faith in a generic God. It's belief in Christ specifically. And then the third thing I want to say about belief is this, the subjective element. The idea of belief for Paul has this idea of trusting in, of resting in. So do you trust and rest in Christ, or do you just have a mental faith about Him? I talk to a lot of people, and one of the questions I'll ask them sometimes if I get a chance is, are you a Christian? And a lot of times they say yes. And I say, what is it that makes you a Christian? And this is the answer I get more often than anything else. Ready? I believe in God. And I say, so does the devil. Okay? Maybe I'm not a very good pastor in that. So does the devil. That's not what makes you a Christian. Right? You have to know and trust and love Jesus specifically. That's what makes you a Christian. Okay? So what Paul means when he says believes is not just mere head assent. It's a trust. It's a resting in. You might have a head knowledge of Jesus. Do you have a heart knowledge of Him? Are you resting in Him? Let me give you a little example I heard an evangelist use one time that I both like and hate. I'll tell you why I like and hate it. Here is the example. I heard this evangelist one time say this. If you're in an airplane and you have a parachute and someone says, do you think that parachute will hold you? You think that parachute will catch you? And you say yes, that's not faith, okay? He said what faith is is actually jumping out of the airplane. Actually jumping out of the airplane shows that you really do trust that parachute to catch you. You're going to put all your hope and all your weight into that parachute to catch you. Now, what I like about that illustration is it does hit home that salvation has to do with a heart-level faith, not just knowing something about Jesus, but actually trusting Him. Here's what I hate about that illustration. You ready? Follow me. This is important. A good parachute will open regardless of how strongly you trust that parachute to open. The problem with that analogy is it makes it sound like to be saved, you have to have perfect faith with no doubt. So what about on the days where I'm doubting? What about on the days where I'm anxious? What about on the days where I'm struggling? Well, the good news is a good parachute's going to open just because it's a good parachute, whether I'm trusting it to open or not. So faith has to do with a faith in a God who provides, a God who's strong even when your faith is weak. 
We've said this many times here. It's a quote from Sinclair Ferguson who says, weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith, as does strong faith. 16c again. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that God loves Jews more than Gentiles in Christ, right? In fact, Galatians will say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That doesn't mean that Jews are somehow saved apart from Christ. There are some people that think that Jews are saved just by being Jews, and it's really just Gentiles, non-Jews, who need Christ. That's not the point of that. What Paul is saying is that salvation for the world comes through Israel. God promised to Abraham that through his descendants, he would send a Messiah who would bless all nations, all right? So yes, the gospel is equally for everybody, but it comes through Israel. It comes through this promise and this covenant to Abraham through this Jewish Messiah. Let me read you a few passages out of the book of Acts. Acts 3, 25 through 26. This is speaking to Jews. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So as they're preaching the gospel, they go to Jews first, and then when they're rejected, they go to Gentiles. Acts 13, 44 through 48. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice the note of election at the end of that, by the way. How many people believed? As many as who were appointed to eternal life. But that's not his point. The point here of what Paul's trying to say is the gospel is for everybody, But the way that God plays out that history of salvation is by sending a Jewish Messiah to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Verse 17a. Verse 17a. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, which means it's begun, it's started, God's saving people, from faith for faith. Okay. Everybody put on your theology pants real quick. Pants or hat? Put on your theology pants and your theology hat for a second. Because verse 17 is difficult and it is very, very, very debated, okay? There are two parts of verse 17, this first part here, that people rack their brains over. The first is, what does the righteousness of God mean? And the second is, what does it mean where it says that it's revealed from faith for faith? What does that phrase mean, okay? Now, this is a huge, huge debate in New Testament studies. Anybody that's worth their weight in salt, if they're a New Testament scholar or a Roman scholar or whatever, will have an opinion on what the phrase, the righteousness of God means, okay? On what the phrase, the righteousness of God means. Because it occurs over and over and over in Romans, and if you misinterpret it, you will misunderstand what Paul is saying for a big, big chunk of Romans. So, we're going to have to go through what these things mean. So, let's start with the righteousness of God. This is very technical. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible, okay? The phrase, the righteousness of God, is somewhat ambiguous, okay? It's somewhat ambiguous. Let me give you an example. I'm going to pick on Carl again. I love Carl, by the way. If you're like, he's so mean. The way guys show affection is by making fun of each other. We're too insecure to just say, I love you, so we make jokes, okay? Uh, So let me use this phrase. So this is called a genitive, the righteousness of God. Let me give you a similar phrase. If I say, the torture of Carl, does that mean that Carl is being tortured, or does that mean that Carl is torturing someone? Think about that for a second. 
the torture of Carl. Does that mean that Carl's being tortured or that Carl is torturing somebody? It can mean either one. Let's say Carl's in the military and he becomes a POW, right? And they're trying to extract information. We would call that the torture of Carl, which means they're torturing him. But I could also use that in a different sentence, and I could say, I share an office with Carl, so I've got to put up with the torture of Carl all day. And that means that he's torturing me. Do you see how it could mean either one? That he could be the subject or the object of that sentence? Do you see that? That's why the phrase, the righteousness of God, is difficult. Is that God's own personal righteousness? Is that the fact that we're accounted righteous by faith? Is that his faithfulness to his covenant to save? What does that mean? So let me give you the three big interpretations of what the righteousness of God means, and then I'll give you what I think to be the correct answer, okay? The first, so here's how I've broken it down. I've alliterated it because I'm a pastor, okay? Is it God's attribute? Is it God's accounting? Or is it God's activity? Let me say that again. Is the righteousness of God God's attribute? Is it his accounting? Or is it his activity? The first view says that the righteousness of God is God's own quality of being righteous. In the same way that God is holy, in the same way that God is strong, in the same way that God is Trinitarian, He's righteous, okay? That's one view. By the way, that is how Paul uses that phrase elsewhere in Romans, specifically in Romans 3. I don't think that's the main thrust of the passage here, though. The second way people view this is as God's accounting. What I mean by that is some people think that the righteousness of God means a status of righteous that we receive from God. That was Luther's view. That's true theologically. Uh, I think the fact that it goes on to say for faith, from faith for faith, and then it goes on and talks about the just living by faith points to that view as well. I, however, think that the main thrust of this passage is on the third use of God's activity, that the righteousness of God means God's activity whereby He is faithful to save. So I think it's a combination of answers two and three, primarily with the emphasis on God's activity to save. Let me tell you why I believe that. Here what Paul is saying is, for in it, God's saving activity is revealed from faith to faith, okay? Here's why I think that. Number one, Paul links this idea to the power of God in the verse before. The power of God is what saves. Here is the similar idea. The righteousness of God is the way that He saves, okay? Uh, Number two, and I think this one's really powerful, in verse 18, which occurs right after this text, it talks about the wrath of God being revealed, which is something God does. And so I also think that the righteousness of God in this passage is something that God does. And on top of all of that, the phrase the righteousness of God in the Old Testament primarily denotes God's saving activity. When God saves Israel out of Egypt, that is God's righteousness, okay? When God delivers uh, Israel from uh, their enemies, that is God's righteousness. So if you're confused, let me give you some examples. Let's say you you go to prison and you can't pay your fine, okay? Your status is as a prisoner. I then come and I have enough money to where I redeem you. I pay your fine. I'm the one doing the saving, but your status changes. Because I've redeemed you, your status now moves from being a prisoner to not being a prisoner anymore, okay? So I say all of that to say what I think the righteousness of God means is God's saving activity in the gospel, which also gives us a status of righteous, okay? I'll give you another example. Let's say you're a Navy SEAL. I knew I was going to work that into a sermon somehow soon. Say you're a Navy SEAL and you're about to fight some terrorists, and you say something like, Let's let these guys taste the freedom of America. What are you meaning by freedom of America? You're meaning inactivity whereby you attack them. Okay, so that kind of phrase is used often to talk about an activity that's used. So, if that's confusing, let me just summarize it for you. Here's what verse 17a means, okay? This is the Zachary interpretation of 17. For in the gospel, 
God's saving activity, which gives us a status of righteous, is revealed for those who have faith. Okay? That in the gospel, God's saving activity, which also gives us a status of righteous, is revealed for those who have faith. Okay? Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, we're going to do some more theology. What does the end of this verse mean? From faith for faith. What does that mean? In Greek, it's ekpisteos eispistin. It literally means just out of faith into faith. What does from faith to faith mean? Or from faith by faith? Or you can interpret it a bunch of different ways. Here's all that phrase means. Ready? Here's all it means. It's, the idea is a progression. Here's all it means. That you are saved by faith from first to last. That's the idea in Greek. It's a progression. You're saved by faith from beginning to end. You're saved by faith and nothing but faith from the start of your Christian walk to the end of your Christian walk. That's specifically what Paul is saying here, okay? So, verse 17, just to summarize, and then we'll take a big breath, and then we'll do some more theology. For in the gospel, God's saving activity, whereby we get a status of righteous, is for those who have faith from first to last, from beginning to end. That's specifically what Paul is saying here. Okay, everybody take a big breath. Relax, there's a lot of theology, a lot of stress. We're going to do some more theology, okay? We're going to do some more theology. There are three main ways that people have a tendency to view salvation, okay? I'm going to show you. We have slides for each. We're going to put up the first one. This comes from a guy named Pelagius, okay? Pelagius is the worst. I hate Pelagius. You should hate Pelagius. Boo, Pelagius. Pelagius shows up at a party. Everybody leaves because they hate Pelagius, okay? Pelagius was an early church leader, and here's what Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that you literally earn salvation, Pelagius taught that you earned salvation, okay? You didn't need grace. God's grace to you for Pelagius was that he gave you the rules you should keep in the Bible. But you didn't need any help following those for Pelagius because he didn't believe that you were born sinful. He believed you were born neutral. And so salvation for him is literally just do more good than bad. That's Pelagius, okay? No Christians hold that. That is a condemned position. That is a heretical position. The only people that hold that are cults or other religions, Mormons, Muslims, uh, other groups, all right? Those would hold that. Nobody holds that. Does Pelagius think that you're saved as a gift by grace alone? No. Again, he's the worst. You don't really even need Christ if you're Pelagius. You can just do better on your own. Does he believe that you receive it by faith alone? Well, of course not. You have to work and you have to earn it, okay? So that's Pelagius. Boo, all right? If you want to get a shirt that says Pelagius with like a no smoking Pelagius symbol on it, that would be fine. Or get at one that has his picture on it where he's in the flames because that's where he is, okay? All right, that's Pelagius. Nobody holds that. Now, the next view is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. This is also the view of St. Augustine. A lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people forget that Augustine was actually Catholic. A lot of Protestants think that he agrees with them on faith, and he does not. But he's so good on so many other things, okay? St. Augustine is great on the Trinity. He's great that we're saved by grace alone. He's great on all these things. But the Catholic position is that you're saved by grace alone, but not by faith alone. A lot of Protestants don't understand this. Your Catholic friend probably does not believe or is not being taught, at least, by his church that they earn salvation. If you're a Catholic, here's what you believe, that it's a gift, that it's by grace alone, but you have to do some things to get the gift. So it's by grace alone, but God puts a little bit of the grace in the waters of baptism. He puts a little bit of grace in the uh, communion wafer when you partake of the mass. He puts a little bit of grace in the sacrament of penance. And so do you see how that makes it kind of not by grace alone? If I say, I'm going to give you this free gift of salvation, but you have to do X, Y, Z to get it, it starts infringing upon the grace. It starts infringing upon the grace. That's the Roman Catholic view. The last one I want to show you 
This is the Protestant view, okay? This is the view we hold here at Parkway. This is the view I would encourage you to hold. And it is not only that we're saved by grace alone and that we can't earn it. Christ has earned it for us. He lived the life we should have lived, not us. He took the penalty we deserve, not us. He did it all. It is a gift. How do I receive the gift? Do I have to strive? Do I have to try really hard? Do I have to get it all right? No. I simply receive the gift by faith. Faith is not even this good work that I do. I don't conjure up faith. It's just empty hands whereby God gives me a gift. This text is teaching that God's saving activity, which gives you a status of righteous, is received sola fide, that is received by faith alone, by faith alone. This is central. This is important that you understand that this isn't just Luther's view. This is Paul's view, all right? This is Paul's view, okay? By the way, just to tell you a little funny story, um, I got a chance to go down to a buddy of mine's church. Uh, he lives down near College Station. I didn't hear any whoops. Okay, so I said he lives near College Station, and uh, so uh, he has a church down there, and last year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so he asked if I would come and talk about the difference between Catholic and Protestant theology, but here's how he introduced me to his congregation. He said, Zach Lee actually used to be a Catholic priest, but he was kicked out of the Catholic church because he would only wear a clerical collar and no shirt. All right? So that's how I started. So just to be clear, that's not true. I've never been kicked out of the Catholic church for nudity, but there's still time. There's still time. Let me read you some passages about being saved by faith alone. Romans 4, 3 through 5. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 10, 8 through 10, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God uh, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation that's a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's that phrase again. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Acts 15, 8-9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Philippians 3, 8 through 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Galatians 3, 5 through 6, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Have I sufficiently beat that dead horse? You are not only saved as a gift, meaning God did it all for you. You did nothing. 
But the way that you receive it is by falling down on your knees and crying out to Jesus as Lord. It's by faith. You cannot earn it. You cannot do better. You cannot stop trying to do better. Stop trying to improve upon God's righteousness. You cannot. If you're righteous in Christ, you can't be more righteous than that. You can't be more righteous than that. Let's end with verse 17b. As it is written. Uh, In Greek, that's a perfect tense. A perfect tense verb is something that happened in the past but has relevance for today. It'd be better translated, it stands written. Okay, it stands written. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying by quoting, and this is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4, what Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm teaching what the Old Testament has already taught you, which is that faith and salvation have always gone together. That's Paul's point. How were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way that they're saved in the New Testament. By putting their faith in the God of the Bible who provides a Messiah and a means of atonement. How are we saved? By putting our faith in the God of the Bible who provides a Messiah and a means of atonement. They have a future-looking faith. We have a backwards-looking faith. And in a sense, it's also future because we're waiting for the second coming. Okay? What Paul is trying to say is when I say that God's righteousness is linked to human faith, all I'm doing is supporting what the Old Testament has already taught anyway. Has already taught anyway. Now, there are some skeptics that will say that Paul misuses and takes out of context this quote from Habakkuk, okay? The problem with those skeptics is they don't understand what Paul is doing. Paul is not trying to explain what's going on in Habakkuk. Paul is just trying to make the point that in the Old Testament and in the New, faith and salvation have always gone together. What the skeptics misunderstand is how analogies work. They misunderstand how analogies work. I'll give you a few examples. I mentioned this before. One time I was explaining to a guy that you can be an evil person and still hold a correct view. You agree with that? You can be an evil person and still hold something that's correct. And what I said to this guy was, even Hitler believed two plus two is four. And he was like, you like Hitler? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me go on record. I don't like Hitler, okay? You 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 can tweet that. Zach Lee does not like Hitler, okay? He misunderstood my analogy. The analogy was even somebody as evil as Hitler could hold a true position on something, meaning two plus two is four, and he misdrew the analogy, okay? In the Song of Solomon, all right, he praises his wife for her beauty, and he says that her belly is like a heap of wheat and her neck is like a tower. That does not mean she's a fat giraffe, okay? That misdraws the analogy. Here, where Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4, he's not trying to explain everything going on in Habakkuk and all the background. That's not what he's trying to do. The only analogy he's trying to draw is to say, in the Old Testament and in the New, salvation has always been linked to faith. We have a tendency to think that people in the Old Testament were saved by works. They were not. God delivered them out of Egypt and married Israel before He gave them His law. Grace precedes the righteous actions, not the reverse. Not the reverse, okay? So here's where I want to end. I want to end by asking some probing questions for our heart, okay? I want to end by going over some questions that relate to the gospel to see if you really hold this, if you really believe this. I want you to examine your heart as I ask these questions. I've got five questions to ask you, and then we'll pray. Here's the first one, okay? Are you ashamed of Jesus or the gospel? Are you ashamed of Jesus or the gospel? Do you hide your faith from others? Do you not want to be seen as weird so you don't mention your faith? Are you embarrassed about what other people would think if they knew you were a devout Christian, that they would make fun of you for your righteousness or whatever it might be? Do you hang out with lost people in an attempt to share your faith? A lot of times you can tell whether or not somebody is ashamed of their faith, not by whether or not they say they're ashamed by their faith, but whether or not they hang out with lost people. Are you friends with lost people? Do you hang out with lost people? Do you spend time with lost people so they might meet Jesus? 
Number two, what are you trusting other than Jesus for your righteousness? Where are you trusting Jesus like 95%, but you're trusting like 5% in something you're doing? Are you trusting in religious acts, going to church, your baptism or partaking of communion, the fact that you read your Bible, the fact that you prayed the sinner's prayer, the fact that you've been in church your whole life? Where are you adding to Jesus' righteousness? In addition to Christ, are you trusting in the strength of your faith? You think that you'll be saved or God will love you if you could just believe better, if you could just do it better. Your own ability to do better, the fact that you don't sin in the same way as other people, the fact that you're generally a good person, the fact that you do or you don't do certain things. What are you trusting other than Jesus for your righteousness? Number three, what do you think you could do that would make God love you more? I'm not asking what the correct answer to that is biblically. I'm asking, there's probably something in your life where you think, if I could just do this better, if I could just stop struggling with this sin, if I could just do this, then God would love me more. Yeah, he kind of has to love me now because he promised that he would, but really I feel like I'm his problem child and he's really disappointed most of the time. But if I could just do this, then he'd love me more. The correct answer to this question biblically is nothing. You cannot do anything. He loves you at your worst. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number four is similar. What do you think you could do that would make God love you less? Is there some sin you're struggling with and you feel like if you just keep struggling with that sin, God surely must love you less? The correct answer to number four, biblically, is nothing. You cannot, if you are as righteous as Jesus, God has counted you as perfect as Jesus. That means you're 100% perfect. It doesn't get more perfect than that. What you do or don't do doesn't change Jesus. If you're in Him, you have His status of righteous. And then number five, how do you think that God views you? How do you think that God views you? You think He's disappointed in you? You think He's angry with you? You think He regrets saving you? You think when He saved you, He didn't know how much trouble you would be? How do you think that God views you? God doesn't love some cleaned up version of you. He loves you now. He loves you now. The reason we beat ourselves up and we feel like God is angry with us and far from us is because we start seeing ourselves apart from Christ. If I just look at how Zach is doing as Zach, it's miserable. But if I look at Zach as being in Christ, there is no more Zach. Zach died. I died at my conversion. There's only Christ. And if the Father and Christ are doing good, and they are, then the Father and whoever's in Christ are doing just as good. They're doing just as good. Where are you failing to believe the gospel? If you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, maybe you are not a Christian, maybe you're just checking us out, maybe you thought being a Christian meant you'd be a good person and sit up straight and tighten your tie or something like that, this is biblical Christianity. God is fixing the world. God is redeeming sinners. God is providing a means of atonement. God is sending a Messiah. God has raised up that Messiah. God is changing hearts. God has elected who He's going to save. It's all about God. It's all about what He's done. If you don't know that, God, would you repent and would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you cry out to him? Would you bow the knee? Would you uh, confess him as Lord? Would you cry out to him as we pray? Let me pray for us as the uh, people helping serve communion come forward. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending Christ. You didn't have to send Christ. You could have just let us all be condemned for our sin, and you would have been totally righteous, yet you sent Christ to save us. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father that you've taken people who are sinners, not only have you forgiven us, but you've adopted us, knowing that we would be difficult, knowing that we would be problem children, knowing that we wouldn't obey and that we wouldn't do what you've asked us to do, and yet you just continue to be gracious to us. We thank you for that. I pray right now as we transition into a time of communion, we would uh, have a special fellowship with Christ. 
We confess that He's here in a special way. And we pray that our hearts would be uh, just enlivened to the things of the gospel, that we would remember His broken body and His shed blood. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.